Some of you know the name Russell Moore. He's a Christian author, widely salt, cultural commentator. He is a theologian and he is an ethicist who also serves as a uh, key leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. In Russell Moore's younger years, he remembers having a conversation with a highly esteemed theologian, Carl F. Henry. Moore was lamenting with his friends about the sad state of the American church. And Dr. Henry had a different spin on the situation, and he saw that there is hope for the church. And here's a quote uh, from Dr. Henry. He says, of course, there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals. And that would be like a reference to us who take the Bible as true. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are uh, probably still pagans. Who knew that the Saul of Tarsus would be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who were saved by the grace of God and became mighty warriors of the faith. Then Russell Moore goes on, and he writes this in his blog uh, called uh, More to the Point, uh, January 2nd, 2012. He says, the next Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know, that would be a great American preacher um, of the 17th, uh, 16th century. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Dar- Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley a great hymn writer, might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. Think about that. The important thing is, there is hope for the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he is the one who changes lives. He is the one who gives direction to his church. He is the one who raises up leaders. He has called us to be faithful witnesses and servants You know, when Jesus went back to heaven, and this is where we were last week in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus went back to heaven, and the disciples were to turn toward Jerusalem and to go back and to wait. I bet world evangelization seemed a little bit bleak when you think of it and what they were up against. At at Jesus' ascension, we looked at last week in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were told to do two things. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, they were told to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the Father's gift. The Father had made a promise, and he was going to send the Spirit of truth, and they were to go back and wait for that gift. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, This is what Jesus said. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That was the Father's gift. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Two things. Go wait, and then you will be my witnesses. So what happened next? Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Here's what Luke writes. He says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphas, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, in verses 12 through 14, we see a major prayer focus by these uh, early leaders. We see the location uh, in verse 12. 
Yeah, the location, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. So um, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk. So the apostles are the disciples. Think in terms of the 12 disciples and 12 apostles. But now there are 11. One is missing. Who is that? Judas Iscariot. They have been uh, at the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus left them and ascended into heaven. The ascension happens there. It's a huge uh, event in the life of Jesus and in the story of the Bible. It's a huge event. It gets really small print. And angels appeared, and they explained that Jesus was going to come back in this very place, the Mount of Olives. They should expect that. Um, they were to return to Jerusalem, and just let me remind you about that. So these guys, most of them are from Galilee. They're from up north. They're fishermen. They're small-town people. Cities are, you know, kind of out of the ordinary for them, big cities. Jerusalem was the biggest city in, in Israel, and it was just super religious and super commercial all around their religion. This was not like a comfortable place because, you know, that's where Jesus was crucified. And the crowds turned against Jesus. It doesn't take much for crowds to turn against people they don't like or that seem a little unusual. This is a dangerous place for the disciples. Jesus said, go back and wait. By the way, if Jesus, if you had been there in the first century and Jesus told you, you know, he sent it into heaven, he says, okay, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Would you have done that? I think that would have been a real question right there because Hey, wait, let's get out of here. You know, I want to get back home. I want to see my family. We've been away for weeks. I want to get back home. Um, of course, we need a map. So just, uh, it's pretty simple here. This is kind of basically the land of Israel, Mediterranean Sea on the left. We have Jerusalem uh, down on the south. And up north is Nazareth. That's where Jesus was raised. Sea of Galilee, Jesus' ministry, primarily focused around there. The disciples are primarily from there. And you can see down at the south, the Dead Sea. And you can see the Jordan River connects those. Now, you see that little triangle to the right of Jerusalem? That's the Mount of Olives. It, it, it even might even be closer on the map than that. But just to let you know, that represents the Mount of Olives. It really wasn't much of a mountain. It was just a little hill. But that's where they'd been. It was the Sabbath day's journey. How far is the Sabbath? It's 2,000 cubits. How far is a cubit? 18 inches. It's 3,000 feet. That's how far you could go on the Sabbath, okay? And so um, they're 0.57 miles walk and uh, from Mount of Olives to back to Jerusalem. We see the leaders in verse 13. I know you just needed a map. Some of you always hope for a map. Verse 13. When they arrived, that's the apostles, who were the, the 11 disciples, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They went upstairs. This is called the upper room, some translations. Upstairs. Uh, upstairs were large meeting rooms and homes and in buildings. Uh, that's the way they constructed the buildings. The, the first level, the lower level, had many rooms because those were all supporting walls to hold the second floor where big things happened. Large groups could meet. Uh, this may be the same room, the same upper room where they had their uh, last supper, their last meal with Jesus on the night he was betrayed. And then the, the, the names are listed in verse 13. And again, there, is, there are 11 and they will be called at times the eleven. And uh, it is this list of people. Luke mentions in Luke 6 their names, all 12. Now Luke mentions the same group. One is missing, and it is Judas. In verse 14, we see their focus. They all join together constantly in prayer. This was their regular daily commitment, constantly in prayer. Uh, we know uh, from the New Testament that from the time that Jesus uh, was resurrected until um, 
until he ascended is, is 40 days. So he spent those 40 days with his disciples and other believers, and at times he was uh, just spending time with them, assuring them, confirming his presence, and he was teaching them. We also know that when uh, the time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and Acts chapter 2, where we're headed next week, the day of Pentecost, is 10 days. 50 days after the resurrection is the day of Pentecost. And so 10 days here, we find them constantly in prayer. Corporate prayer, prayer, constant prayer, and um, they were, it was... um, They were constantly in prayer, along with women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So it's it's a prayer group of men and women. It wasn't just men, and women couldn't be there. It was a group of men and women. It included Jesus' mother, Mary. And, you know, there are are some groups uh, that raise Mary to a super high elevation on the level of the Trinity, or slightly under. There are people who pray to Mary. There are people who pray in the name of Mary. And um, here we are in the book of Acts. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. This is the last mention of Mary in the Bible. Okay? There is no command to pray to Mary. We are commanded to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Okay, Um, Mary is going to disappear from Scripture. She's not in any of Paul's letters to the church, which are instructions to the church about uh, worship and behavior as uh, followers of Christ. And uh, I'm just, Mary's important. Mary's a godly woman. Mary is the woman uh, who conceived Jesus, that God picked her, and uh, that's special favor from God. And she raised Jesus. That would be, in some ways, a really difficult task, an awesome responsibility. And she did well. And here she is. Her son has been crucified. Her son is resurrected. Her son is ascended. And she knows that her son is her Lord now. And she is here, a faithful woman of God. And she is praying. It also mentions the brothers. And uh, Jesus' brothers weren't too impressed with Jesus in his ministry. Uh, We know from Matthew 13, their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. This is early in the ministry. And we never find out how they came to faith in Christ, or did they? His brothers, you know, how would you like to grow up with Jesus? And he's always right, you know. He, he always has a good answer. He's humble. He's kind. He's gentle. He's not, he doesn't get angry about brothers and sisters stuff. This would be tough to be, have him as a brother. And all of a sudden, in his adult years, he goes public and starts saying things like, He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's going to be returning. He says all kinds of things, and he does miracles. And they think he's gone wacko. He's just, we didn't expect, we didn't see this coming. He needs to be in treatment. But 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, gives us a big clue. This is the resurrection chapter, and Paul says, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, And here it is, that Christ died for our sins, according to Scriptures. That's first importance. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures. That's first importance. And then he appeared to Cephas. And that would be Peter's Aramaic name. So this is the Apostle Peter. And then to the Twelve, which would actually have been the Eleven, because he's a part of the Twelve. But they were often called, the group was called the Twelve or the Eleven, whether there were eight or nine or twelve or eleven, They got called by the group name. Next slide. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. So when we get to the next few verses, it's going to say there's 120 in the upper room praying. Well, there are more believers than just the 120, but there were 120 in the upper room. 
So he appeared, this is after the resurrection, he appears to more than 500 at the same time. That's kind of a larger group. Most of whom are still living. And the point being there is you could go to and ask him if you want to hear the story about Jesus' resurrection. You can talk to him because here are their names and addresses. Though some have fallen asleep, I mean they've experienced physical death. That would be a common way to talk about a believer who's gone to heaven. Then he appeared to who? James. Not one of the twelve. Not Peter, James, and John. This is a different James. Who is this? This is James, the Lord's brother, who will write the book of James, who became, becomes a major leader in the book of Acts, such that by Acts 15, James is the leading spokesman of all the churches gathered in Jerusalem to talk about a doctrinal issue. So James is, becomes the leader. Why? It's right here. What would you do if your resurrected brother showed up? Doesn't tell what happened. But James became a highly committed follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, my assumption is that his brothers did as well. You got, you got Jesus as your brother, and then you've got James as your brother. Um, I'm guessing all the brothers are going to get it. Mom has gotten it all the way along uh, in bits and pieces, and now the brothers get it. Such that they're willing to take everybody in this room is taking a huge risk being together. Because the Romans might come or the Jewish police might come and say these people are causing a riot and they're, they're hurting our religion. So it's a risky place that they're in. So uh, now the leadership decision, the first major decision, the church, the, they're not a church yet, this group faces uh, in verses 15 through 20. So let's track that through with verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, verse 15, a group numbering about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of the number and one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Pretty, pretty uh, graphic there. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so that they called the field in their language Alkadama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. I hope when you see a passage like that, you're just loaded with questions. What are your, you know, like, what are your questions? Uh, reading something ought to raise questions that need to be answered in your mind. So let me see if I can start. First, uh, the leadership in verse, first, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up. If you read through uh, the Gospels, you'll find Peter's name is mentioned first in the list of the Gospels because he is the most influential, the most significant. He is the leader of these leaders. He is the first. And uh, it is Peter and, who stood up among the believers. He, he, he stood up. That, you know, you've got 120 people. A lot of them are leadership types. And Peter is the one who stands up. Jesus spent more time. If you trace through the Gospels, Jesus spent more time developing Peter. Peter made more mistakes than everybody else. But Peter, Jesus spent more time developing Peter. He took Peter, James, and John alone from the other disciples. And he spent more, he invested more time because they were going to be leaders of the leaders. And, and out of that came Peter as the leader of them all. Uh, Peter is going to be the main leader, the main apostle in the book of Acts for the first half of the book. We're going to follow Peter and his ministry, not the other disciples. They're, Occasionally, a few of them will be mentioned. Some of the disciples we will not hear from again. We just read their names and that's it. Peter will be the main featured uh, figure, actor in the book of Acts. And then it's going to shift to the Apostle Paul. And he is going to become the key leader. And we're going to follow his story. The need is in verses 15 through 17. Peter will identify the need for the first leadership decision. In those days, we just read that Peter stood up. And he says, brothers and sisters, Scripture had to be fulfilled. 
It was necessary to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke of long ago through David concerning Judas. So Peter is making reference to Scripture in the Old Testament. He's going to refer to the book of Psalms, things about David that David made mention of. And um, he goes on to say uh, concerning Judas, who served as our as guide for those who arrested Jesus, meaning Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. Um, for 30 pieces of silver, he was willing to take the religious leaders. He went to the high priest, got a group of police and Roman soldiers, and they went out, and, and Judas led them. They knew right where Jesus was going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was arrested because Judas took him out there. Um, here's an example, Psalm 41.9. Peter doesn't mention that here. He says, Uh, This is David writing. He says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, who shared my bread, has turned against me. Here's the deal. David was a king, and David had enemies, and here's an example. Now, what's going to happen in the the New Testament periodically? It's going to happen in just a minute uh, with Peter quoting Psalms. Is There are Psalms, we call them royal Psalms, that talk about the king, King David, and his enemies. And some of these applications are going to refer to the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And only the Holy Spirit has the authority to use one of these Psalms. And this would be an example. We're going to see a couple more in just a minute. Um, The reputation of the betrayer in verses 18 and 19 Peter goes on to describe what happened to Judas, verse 18, with with the payment he received for his wickedness, that is 30 pieces of silver paid for by the Jewish religious leaders, Judas bought a field. Well, actually, if you know the story in Matthew 27, Judas didn't actually take his money and pay the price for the field. Judas had remorse for what he had done. He felt terribly guilty. And he took the money back, and he tried to give it back, and the priest, uh, chief priest refused to take it. And so out of his remorse, he threw the money in the temple on the floor, 30 pieces of silver bouncing around, because he, he didn't want to have anything to do with it because of how bad he felt. And uh, the chief priests didn't want the money. They didn't want to take a contribution or a donation for what was blood money. And so what do they do? They bought a field, and it's going to be a burial place, a good place to bury Judas. And it's going to um, become um, the field of blood. He fell headlong. Matthew 27 tells us that Judas hung himself. doesn't tell him that he fell or that he burst wide open. It just says he hung himself. Luke learns more about the situation. He gets more details because he wants people to realize um, that Judas was cursed also. And um, because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Judas hung on a tree when he hung himself. Jesus hung on a tree when he was crucified. Jesus became our curse for us. Judas experienced his own curse and bore his own sin wasn't paid for. And um, perhaps from um, hanging in the sun and the heat, um, that's possible that uh, caused uh, the the change to burst open. Uh, Some think that he fell, maybe fell off of like a cliff off of a tree and and fell and, and, and the falling when he hits the rocks is going to cause all the damage. Uh, Luke is just giving us more information. It was such a big deal, verse 19, that everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and they called that field in their language, Alkadama, that is, field of blood. It was purchased with blood money. uh, Judas purchased it, so to speak, because it was what he earned. He earned that, and um, the high priest paid for it, but it's what Judas got out of the deal. 
verse 20, the fulfillment of Scripture. 4, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. So we're going to go to Psalm 69, 25, and it says, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And so he's quoting one of those uh, psalms about David and his enemies. And Peter right here is making this application to Jesus. It's not um, a prophecy about Judas by name. It's an application by Peter using uh, this royal psalm, a psalm for the king and a psalm about his enemies. And then Psalm uh, Chapter 109, verse 8 says, May another take his place of leadership. And the Holy Spirit is guiding uh, Peter, and, uh, it's, it's, and Peter understands that this uh, passage um, is about now. We need to replace Judas because he has been one of the enemies of the king, and it was uh, forewarned in Scripture. We come to the last section, verses 21 through 26, the new leader chosen, and we're going to read that together. And Peter says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection." So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. And now they have a leader. So um, the new leader is chosen. First, the qualifications, verses 21 and 22. And um, Peter says it is necessary to choose one. It's, it's, this must take place. Uh, this has a divine necessity to it. Um, we, we need to ch- choose this leader. The leader will be a man. Choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. Um, this candidate must have been a part of their fellowship from the beginning one of the disciples, one of the followers of Christ, one who uh, engaged when Jesus went public with his ministry, and that would be his baptism. When um, he goes out and uh, John the Baptist identifies him, John the Baptist is the one who went before to prepare the way, and John, this is it. This is when um, the Father spoke from heaven and the Spirit descended on Jesus publicly, And he begins his public ministry. And there were a lot of people there who witnessed that, including disciples. And some of the disciples of John became disciples of Jesus. And so uh, that's one of the qualifications. You had to have been with us from the beginning. You had to to hear Jesus. You You had to hear his words. You had to hear his teaching. And you had to follow. And... um, this is paying attention. This is putting God's word, taking, um, taking God's word by faith, and it's putting it into your life, being a follower, uh, becoming obedient. Uh, becoming obedient such that they are in the upper room on this occasion, taking that risk, waiting as Jesus uh, instructed them for the Holy Spirit to come, the, the promised gift that the Father would send. And then he says, uh, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's the other qualification. This is a qualification for all the original apostles. That's why we don't have apostles today. They must have witnessed the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. They must have um, had an interaction with Jesus during that 40 day from the day of resurrection to his ascension. Had to be one of those had to be in that group, had to have experienced this because they're going to be witnesses to their world and uh, they have a message to share. They're supposed to tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. And notice what Peter says here. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now just think about this. Jesus told them, Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. 
So here they are in the upper room. Nothing's happened yet. All they've done is prayed. And Peter, this is what we're going to do, folks. We are going to do what Jesus told us to do. I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we are going to be witnesses to his resurrection. And we have to add one more to make this complete so we can do our job. That's what's going on here. The process is verse 23 through 25. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. We don't know anything about these guys from the scripture. First mention, and um, it soon will be the last mention. But they're important uh, for this time. They were in the room. They had witnessed Jesus' baptism and been there after a resurrection. They had followed through the years. Now they are candidates to be promoted to the twelve. Verse 24, then they prayed. The group prayed. This was how they operated. This was what they had learned, how they had learned to function from watching Jesus' life. Jesus prayed regularly, daily, important things. This is what he did. And they're, they're catching on. He's not there to tell them. They have to think of it on their own. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of the two you have chosen. They, they sought the Lord's directions. They had two worthy candidates, both worthy people. Now it's up to the Lord to make a choice to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas had left. And then we have the result, verse 26. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the heaven apostles, and that's the last verse. And now we know who it is. It's Matthias. They cast lots. That was a practice in the Old Testament. Uh, It's referred to in the book of Proverbs. And they had two good choices, and they would sort of like be rolling dice, but they put uh, lots we're not sure exactly what they look like, probably in something like a little cup, and they shook them out, and they dumped them out. And the first one that came out uh, was the one chosen, and it was Matthias. And by the way, we're not going to hear of Matthias again. This is it. Um, nowhere in Scripture are we told to cast lots. Uh, no, and we, do, we don't see casting lots ever again in Scripture. So uh, this is not necessarily meant to be a model for how we do things. This is what they did on that occasion. Um, so why was having 12 important? Judas uh, is a traitor. He needs to be replaced, and they bring in Matthias. Why is that important? Um, Jesus had a purpose for the 12. And uh, we, we catch that in Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, he's talking about future things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, so this is going to be after the second coming of Christ, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What is that all about? There's no easy explanation. The book of Revelation has some clues. But there were 12 tribes in Israel, that's Old Testament, and there were 12 disciples. And they're going to have a role in the future. And somehow Peter is, gets a sense that we've got to have 12. And so we've got to have a replacement. And they replace uh, Judas with Matthias. And my take on this is that Matthias is going to be one of those 12 sitting on a throne. We jump to Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. And the Apostle John gives us this information. It had a great high wall. He's, look, he's talking in Revelation 21 about the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. This is heaven right here, Revelation 21. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's the 12. 13, there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The Lamb being Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed for sin. And there is this purpose in 12. I don't know that I fully understand it. There was something about the nation as a 12 
12 tribes, that there was a completeness in that. And there's something about the 12 uh, disciples and the 12 apostles and the future kingdom of God that is important. Now, it's interesting to note that um, in Acts 12, James, one of the disciples, one of the 12, he is going to be uh, executed by Herod. He's going to be the first martyr of the church. And guess what? They're not going to replace him. Their, their task has been done. They have been witnesses for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when James goes, so goes that specific role that he had. And then one by one, the other apostles will die. All of them martyrs. John doesn't actually die, but he's uh, tortured at the end of his life. And he just dies of old age after he's been severely burned, as far as we understand. But none of them are replaced. And we get to a place like the book of Ephesians, and and the Apostle Paul calls the apostles the foundation to the church. The foundation has been laid. Personally, I don't think there's any group around since then that have had this role in ministry that the first apostles had, that they are very unique. So, I have a few lessons here, some lessons. First of all, when you think about uh, our passage today, sometimes the next best step in life is to wait. Sometimes the next best step is to wait. I don't know what kind of, if you have any decisions you have to make, or where you are, or what's ahead of you, or what you're praying about. But sometimes, just think about it, the next thing you should do is wait. That's what the disciples were told to do. They waited 10 days. Sometimes we have to wait 10 years. Sometimes we wait longer than that. To wait for God's provision for the next step. Waiting can be hard. It's really difficult for actionaries. Some of you are action-oriented. Peter was an action-oriented man. He wanted to do something immediately when Jesus told him to do it. That's why he was called the foot-in-mouth disciple because he often just acted on the, did the wrong thing. He's getting smarter. He's learning to wait on the Lord. Good reminder, Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You know, for some of us here, that just might be a wise thing right now where we are is to wait and see what they had to do in the first century as they were told to go back, wait. Second lesson, prayer is both crucial and essential to live the Christian life. I know you already know that, I just wanted to remind us all this morning. I need the reminder how important prayer is. They model it right off the bat. They get off to a great start. Look at Jesus, Mark 135. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, when I think about this, the amazing thing is to me is this is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Uh, he is totally connected with the Father. But humanly, he needed to connect with God. And he was just compelled to pray. And he modeled this for his disciples. And he didn't hit them over the head about prayer. He instructed them about prayer. But he modeled it. And if Jesus needs to pray, if that's how he connects with God, what about us? What about me? Uh, Luke chapter 11, well-known passage One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. There he is. He's just doing what he needs to do. He lines lines his heart with God the Father. He connects. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, at least they waited until he finished, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And so uh, this is a response to teach us. We want to learn. We see you doing it. Teach us. And so he prays. Uh, When you pray, say, next slide, Father, hallowed be your name. This is a condensed version of, the, of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew 6 is a different version. I would take that to be to, two totally different occasions, but still the same concept. Uh, Father, hallowed be your name. So it's addressed to the Father, not, not addressed to Mary or St. Peter or anybody else, but to the Father. This is what Jesus taught. This is how you do it. Hallowed be your name. I always like to just point out that this is a prayer request for God. It's not for us. It's about God's name being holy. It's about God's name being honored. 
It's about God's name being highly respected. And this is what Jesus wanted. He wanted people to learn to respect. God's name is about his reputation. And, you know, if that's going to happen, God's name, God needs to be honored in my life. Uh, If God's name be holy, then there's going to be an implication with me about I need to be holy. There's a... Um, but this is a prayer for God. So this is what he taught his followers. I wonder if this would be a good model for us, if this is what, what, how Jesus thought it should be done. Start with God. God's request first. Second request. And actually, the, Matthew says, uh, Thy will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. Remember that? God's will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. Because when, when God speaks in heaven, it happens. But that's not so here yet, is it? There's a time coming when it will. But now, praying for the kingdom, to, uh, for God's will to be done now, which is back to obedience. It's back to us. There's a part, how can, if I want this, does that affect me? I think so. And then he, he prays, um, your kingdom come. About God's kingdom coming to the earth. That's what's going to happen in Revelation 21. It's the whole, everything's going to be consumed with his kingdom. And there's going to be total obedience. There's going to be no sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Jesus is going to wipe away every tears. But it's, it, there's going to be an absolute kingship of Jesus. Because all sin is going to be removed. It's going to be final judgment before that takes place. Kingdom coming to this earth. We are to be praying God's kingdom, God's reign, God's influence, God's authority affecting us as a group, as a city, as a nation. And, and God chooses to work when his people pray. Okay, And then now we're going to switch, forgive us our sins, so now we get to pray for ourselves. The first is that vertical relationship, now the horizontal relationship. Forgive us our sins, so it makes a difference about how we live. And we need to seek God's forgiveness, the vertical relationship. And we also need to make sure that our, we have short accounts with people, with our friends and our coworkers and our classmates, that we have short accounts, that if we need to ask for forgiveness, that we do that. And lead us not into temptation. Uh, yeah. And we're supposed to forgive others. And then lead us not in temptation. This is about protection from us. Um, Matthew says, deliver us from the evil one. And um, the point here is we should pray for protection from the enemy. Uh, We should pray uh, when we face temptation that God will help us walk through the temptation. And the model we have is God first, his kingdom first, our kingdom second. That just makes really good sense to me. God's first, I'm second. You know, I think about my own life, and it's kind of a little kingdom. You know, the things that I want, the things that are important to me. And um, God's first. That's what the prayer is all about. Um, Luke eleven nine, Same chapter that he just taught the Lord's prayer, prayer. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. God will answer your prayer. You have to ask. But what Jesus would recommend is God's kingdom first, your kingdom sec- second, and just go ahead and ask. Luke 18.1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And of course, the, the parable is about uh, the, the woman who uh, has been mistreated and she goes to an unjust judge to get justice and he's kind of ignoring her, and he isn't interested in her, and she just keeps going back, and she begs, and she begs, and she nags, and she pleads, and finally, he's, he's had so much grief, he just says, okay, you get it. And um, the, Jesus' point is, pray and don't give up, because your heavenly Father is way better than the unjust judge. Pray and don't give up. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray continually. Uh, goes on, uh, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
And I don't want to sit here and guilt you that you pray 24, but the idea is you're in a continual conversation with God that, you know, you can't think about God without thinking about your responsibilities and other things, but you, know, you can just you can ask God for help. You can thank God. You can praise Him during the day. But it's just a, an on thinking about just He's with you, He's present, and you can communicate anytime. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote high priority to prayer, being watchful, being on the lookout, watching for, for what God is doing, watching for God's answers. Oftentimes we miss because we're not looking. He does something, and it would encourage us if we were paying attention, but sometimes we're just, pity me, be watchful and be thankful Third lesson, leaders must, uh, for the church must be qualified. Leaders for the church must be qualified. This was important for apostolic leadership. Men who had seen, had seen Jesus, they had heard Jesus, and they followed Jesus, and they were trained by him. And Jesus is the one who selected his disciples up until Matthias, and he, I guess Jesus selected Matthias from heaven. Um, this is important for the church. In Titus Five, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Uh, Paul says to Titus, Titus was a young pastor. He said, the reason I left you in Crete, the island of Crete, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus's job was to go uh, from town to town where the churches were. That's what he means by town. The churches are there. And appoint elders, not elders of the town, but elders of the church. So he was to select them, and he gives qualifications. It must be blameless. That's not perfect. What I just want you to see, there are qualifications that a leader in the church should have. must be faithful to his wife, a one-woman kind of guy, a guy that has eyes only for his wife. You know, that's sometimes easy to pick up, what happens to a guy's eyes. Um, But he's a one-woman man. He's committed to one woman. Um, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We're not talking about perfect kids. But there ought to be some kind of sense that they, they're learning respect in their home and they're learning uh, values in their home. Next slide. Uh, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. Not perfect. Blameless is the idea of he, he's handled his faults. He deals with them. Um, he, he seeks to be honest. He seeks to walk with God. When, he, when you fall down, you get back up. Um, not overbearing, not controlling, not uh, lording authority over someone, not quick-tempered, but patient, um, not given to drunkenness. It doesn't say never drink. It just says don't abuse uh, alcohol, uh, don't abuse anything, um, not violent, but a peaceful kind of person. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, an honest person, a man of integrity. Rather, he must be hospitable. Um, not uh, self-centered with his possessions or his home, but uh, open to having people in and allowing people to use his things. One who loves what is good, as opposed to one who has got a secret life going on uh, uh, focused on uh, things that dishonor God. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Someone who's self-controlled or disciplined. They, they have their lives in some kind of order, some kind of discipline, training for godliness, having spiritual discipline about how do I grow, what's important. Well, prayer's got to be important. God's word has to be important. There's certain things I need to do to discipline myself. Holy, just not perfect, but just set apart for God. Somebody who is, this is high value, committed to God. And what my point here is leaders for the church must be qualified. Last lesson here, leaders for the church must be developed. And we have 2 Timothy chapter 2, very last passage. And the things you've heard me say, the apostle Paul says to Timothy in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This one's excited me since I was a brand new Christian. Uh, The way we used to say it is teach faithful men who will teach faithful men who will in turn teach others. That's how I became a Christian, by the way. Somebody was faithful. Somebody has been faithful for 2,000 years since Peter and the 11 and since the Apostle Paul. 
People have been passing on the word of God one generation after another. Somebody shared the gospel with me, the real, true gospel, that Christ died for my sins. And I was able to understand and respond. And then somebody uh, helped me, and they began to teach me and help me to understand. And faithful people who wanted to hold high the word of God. And... uh, so I could be, become a reliable person, um, a faithful person who would be qualified to teach others. And, you know, I just want to say, for, just bring it down to the bridge. We've had six really good elders at the bridge. And um, each of them has spent one and a half to two years preparing to become elders. And um, spent time uh, talking about leadership things talking about scripture and the responsibility of leaders. And they invested time to become, and and our elders currently meet um, twice a month. And uh, we we pray, we we talk about matters of of ministry, we communicate what's happening in the bridge. And um, I just want to say we have some top quality leaders. Um, And I'm currently starting a new group of men uh, to be prepared uh, for uh, leadership in the future. And all again, we're saying leaders for the church must be developed. That's Acts chapter 1. Next week, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 2. Please stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for Scripture and I thank you for um, your church. Thank you that you've given us the story of how the church was begun. Thank you that you're still writing that story, and we are a part of that story. And we will continue to be a part of the story until we go to be with you or until you come back for us. May we be faithful as witnesses. I thank you for um, leadership. I thank you for leaders that you've raised up at the bridge. May we as a church continue to hold high value to Uh, raising up leaders and developing leaders. And Father, I pray that um, as you have given the responsibility to the very first church to be your witnesses in all the world, God, that we will continue that story and we will continue to be a part of uh, what you have for us, that we will share who you are and what you've done for us in the places that we go, whether it's um, to work on Monday, to our classroom, Uh, to our neighborhood, to our families. May we uh, just speak the truth and um, allow you to work through us. For Jesus' sake, amen.